Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Loyola Community Church. Please stand as we worship the Lord together.
just take a moment and greet those around you. And at this time, students are dismissed. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Bridget Riley, and I am one of the members here at La Jolla Community Church. We are a community of families that loves to get together on Sunday and worship as one big family. So welcome. So glad you could all be here. If you are new, could you please open your bulletin? We would love to hear from you and know who you are. And if you'd like to receive information about our church and all the awesome stuff that goes on here each week, please fill this out. We also have a section if you have prayer requests or praise reports. We love to get those too. But every week we have a group of people that pray specifically for your needs. So when the ushers come by later for the offering, please drop that into the basket. We'd be happy and honored to pray for each of you. Um, so some of the announcements, I don't know if you were able to see or spend time with the alternative gift market we have outside. It's one of my favorite events we host here each year. So we have several nonprofits that um, offer gifts that are handmade and benefit us here at the church or even have far-reaching um, benefits uh, worldwide. So please be sure to spend some time and buy a gift with purpose and maybe something a little more meaningful for a loved one this Christmas. And then we have Friendsgiving coming up this Tuesday in the community center with Ryan. So all of our youth ministry will be in there, junior high and high school. It's a time for them to get together and just celebrate with food and play games and have fun. So if you plan on joining, could you please bring a uh, dish to share, and the kids can bring dessert. So I am partial to pie, but not picky, so you can bring anything. <laughs> so thank you for uh, listening to the announcements, and enjoy the rest of service. Bridget. Well, let me ask you a personal question. Um, how are you weak, and how are you strong? How are you weak, and how are you strong? Uh, and if you're sitting there thinking, boy, I just don't know, I, I'll give you a really big uh, help with this. Turn to somebody who knows you and say, hey, how am I weak? And we got 45 minutes. It'll, it'll just take a little bit of time. They'll fill it in for you. And if you uh, are, are having a hard time figuring out where you're strong, likewise, turn to somebody you know or, or call somebody you know and say, okay, I, I was asked this question today. Uh, uh, where am I weak? Do you have any possible suggestions where that might be, what that might look like in me? And by the way, they asked me how I'm strong, and I was wondering if you would want to give me some feedback. It's a big question, isn't it? It's sort of hard sometimes to have that perspective because we take our strengths for granted, and we don't want to necessarily have to face our weaknesses. That's a big, big challenge. Uh, the word that, that comes to mind is the word vulnerability. We don't like feeling vulnerable. We don't like people seeing that we don't have it all together, that we're less than perfect. We don't even live up to our own expectations. And then with all the demands and expectations on us, Life can be a little overwhelming. Uh, it makes you want to just pull in into your own little world. Uh, there was a young man who grew up as a single kid in a family, a loving family, great family, very uh, precocious child and, and teenager, 
shy, uh, introverted, and uh, had the blessing of going off to Dartmouth University. And after a year, it was, it was too much, uh, too much. And so he decided to go to a, a smaller college where he met the woman of his dreams, uh, the woman he'd spend 50 years in marriage with. But the question was, how do you get married if you're so shy, you don't quite know how to make the ask? And so uh, his strength was writing. So he wrote her a letter as a proposal. Let's let that sink in for a second. Uh, how would that go with you? Um, especially if it was Xerox with just a line and then your name was written in the line. You know, that would be, no, he didn't do that. But um, he wrote his wife-to-be a letter. That's how shy he was. Uh, and he laid it all out for her. And thankfully, uh, she loved him and, and that was okay with the letter. And so Fred and, and Joanne Rogers spent the next 50 years in marriage together. And he was shy and introverted, but super creative, and realized that the most vulnerable people are little ones, children. And so he thought, I want to do stuff with, with children. He, he, he'd been a music composition major in college. Uh, he liked to write. He was really into puppets. He was so much of a loner that he would spend his time doing puppets and creating puppet shows at home. Uh, and so after college, he was enamored of the whole new media uh, medium of, of television and wanted to, to work in, in TV and wanted to do something that would reach children. Uh, people tend to talk um, about children or talk over children. They don't usually talk to children. At least then they didn't do that much in media. Um, and so uh, he had a really strong faith and he went to seminary. And so when Fred had finished seminary uh, to become a pastor, they didn't quite know what to do with him. Uh, he didn't want to get up and talk to a bunch of adults and be involved with them. So they said, hey, Fred, what if we commissioned you? What if we ordained you uh, to work with children, to influence children? So that's how Fred Rogers got his launch uh, doing children's programming. And so from about 1961 to 1968, he, he, he was in Canada, he was in the United States. He's trying to figure out how to connect with kids. He wrote scripts, he wrote songs. Finally, he landed on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? So 1968, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood launched, and it took off. 31 years, uh, he did that. He wrote 200 songs. Uh, what, a, what a great gift he gave kids. And now when I talk about being vulnerable, I'm not talking just about being physically vulnerable. Uh, Gee, somebody could hurt me. I'm talking about the vulnerability uh, that, that, that requires us getting out of our comfort zone and putting ourselves out there, like to ask somebody to marry you. That's a pretty scary thing, right? Uh, and for, for most guys, the, the fear is this. She might say yes, <clears throat> but more of a fear is she might say no. And so guys tend to want to play it super, super safe. And they'd ask questions like this. Hey, like if a friend of mine wanted to marry you, you know, if that, you know if, um, it's emotionally sort of there uh, because none of us want to put it out there. Nobody wants to get up and speak in front of a group of people and have nothing to say. That's why public speaking is such a big fear for people. And yet, most people in an audience would say, hey, the less you have to say, the better, actually. So, you know, uh, I didn't get that memo. Um, <laughs> more is always better. Uh, but think of all the things that you have ever had to face that, were, that required you to be vulnerable. Uh, last weekend, some young girls, uh, you saw some of them leaving today, a uh, couple who are, are not here today, but they did a, a music recital, a piano recital, 
Uh, think about this. How many of you have been in them? How many parents have watched them? They're excruciatingly, pain, excruciatingly painful for everybody involved uh, because this kid's really trying to get it right and the parents want them to get it right, especially the teacher wants them to get it right because they don't want the parents saying, all this time and money for this? Are you kidding me? Um, uh, but they went and showed up and did a recital and there were some glitches, there were some false starts, a little bit of awkwardness, but at the end it was a triumphant masterpiece of presentation. Why? Because everybody poured out affirmation on those two girls and all the kids involved. When we're vulnerable, it's interesting how if we're willing to be vulnerable, facing our weaknesses, not trying to hide behind them or hide them, or always to lead with our strength. It's interesting how people show compassion and they show appreciation and they show encouragement, right? When, when we step out in vulnerability, it's often surprising that people actually meet our vulnerability with, with uh, high regard. Things go a lot better than we think they will normally go. So as we talk about this, uh, we continue in this book called Ruth. Uh, probably the, the slimmest, besides a couple books in the New Testament, Jude in the, in, in the New Testament is like one page, one side of one page. Philemon in the New Testament, one side of one page. Uh, Ruth is, is a couple pages in the Old Testament, and good luck finding it. Always go to the table of contents when you're trying to find Ruth, or else you spend most of the time you have to read finding it. You won't have any more time to read. But in Ruth, we've been seeing that being weak and strong are not contradictory. They're not incompatible. We tend to think in our culture in terms of weak or strong. Do you want to be weak or do you want to be strong? And the fact is we're both and, right? We are all weak and we are all strong. And our culture's counsel typically is hide your weaknesses. Don't let anybody know. Uh, avoid confronting those weaknesses. Uh, know everybody else's because you can use those to your advantage. But always lead with strength. And of course, what we're learning uh, now in our culture, with help of people like Brene Brown, for example, one of the most watched TED Talks of all time, what is she talking about? Vulnerability. So all of a sudden, vulnerability is a hot topic. Why? Because finally we realize there's greater strength in recognizing that we are weak and strong than pretending we're only strong or that we're only weak. And so what we've seen in Ruth is it's weakness and strength. Being weak and strong are not yin yang. You don't have to be both, but you are both. And weak and strong are not incompatible uh, and they're not contradictory. So authentically strong people uh, are people that learn to recognize their weaknesses. And any good business consultant will say, don't spend all your time trying to make your weaknesses your strength. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a waste of your time. You will not make your weaknesses your strengths. But make your weaknesses uh, strong enough that they won't detract from your strengths. That, that's great counsel for any young person, any person mid-career, any person trying anything on. Look, don't pretend you're, you're strong or you're weak, uh, but don't spend all your time or much of your time trying to get your weaknesses to be your strengths. Call them out, name them, understand what you need, and say, these are my weaknesses. I need somebody to, 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 to support me in this area so that my strengths can really fly. So weak and strong is one of the themes that we see in this, in this book. And what we see is that uh, authentically strong people, in recognizing their weaknesses, really reveal themselves to be emotionally smart, right? EQ, high EQ. High emotional intelligence when you can say, these are my weaknesses. And so what happens then? Out of that, out of that sense of, uh, these are my weaknesses, here's, here's the humility I bring uh, to the party, uh, to the process, to whatever situation I'm in. We find that that is somehow a character-building exercise. Because when we start to own who we are and who we're not, 
It gives God room to build into our character. Why? Because God always meets us where we are. And if we're pretending we're someplace that we're not, we're wondering why God doesn't meet us. Because he's meeting us where we really are, but we're not there. When we allow God to meet us where we are, he starts to build into our lives in ways that, that create a depth in us that is more than just more knowledge or even just uh, more skill. It's a moral, and we would say it's a spiritual, but I'm using the word moral because oftentimes people think of spiritual as being irrelevant. If somebody is spiritually mature, well, that's nice and everything, but that's sort of irrelevant. No. When we say somebody is spiritually mature, spiritually alive, we're saying everything that matters in their life is coming together for a larger purpose. They're discovering who they are in spite of their weaknesses. And perhaps because of their weaknesses, they're finally humble enough to say, I need God. I've tried. I can't make me the person I want to be. But I will submit myself to God's work in me. And what that does is that lifts us up. And it gives us a moral clarity that I'm not the final arbiter of what's right and wrong. It gives us an intellectual clarity. I don't have to pretend I know everything. It gives us a social clarity. There's lots of other people I need in my life. And this is the powerful process of becoming an authentic human being. Why? Because God made us to be authentic human beings. And that's how we become fully alive in him, is realizing God authentically loves us, and nothing and no one can take that away from us. And so all of a sudden, vulnerability becomes a pathway to depth. It becomes a pathway uh, to growing beyond our fear of being found out as weak people or our insecurity to have to always pretend we're strong people. And so noble character isn't a social status. It's moral IQ, right? It's moral EQ. It's something that comes together in us that allows us to be people uh, that represent in our character uh, something that other people would say, I like that, I want more of that, I like when you're on the team, I like being around you, because you don't pretend to be perfect, but there's something about you that is endearing and attractive. Are you following this? Are you relating to this at all? These are the people you most like in life. You might think, well, they have a winning personality, they're really fun to be with, they're really good at this or that. You go, yeah, but at the end of the day, you know somebody long enough, what you, what you are most attracted to is their character. There's something about them it's inherently attractive beyond how they look, beyond what they have, beyond any prestige or status that they possess. So noble character isn't any kind of status. It's a state of being in relationship with the living God who lifts us up and draws us to himself and then leads us and guides us through any number of circumstances in life that otherwise would overwhelm us, but instead we say, okay, Lord, what do you want to do here and now with me? And so Fred Rogers, with that kind of faith in him, says, I hope she marries me. I think I'll write a letter. TV might be a great way to tell stories that would help children. I'll, I'll take a step out. I can only fail. Years ago, I, I, I had finished uh, uh, seminary and uh, this intense graduate school process, and uh, I, this guy called me up and said, hey, we'd like you to be on our staff. And uh, I said, you know, I really don't think that's what I want to do. I don't want to be a minister. Um, but I, I just... I. I went to seminary just to deepen my faith, to understand more about what I believe. He goes, well, could you come talk to us? And so one thing led to another, and I felt like I'm, I'm supposed to be doing this. And so I'm the most unlikely candidate to be a pastor. It's massively vulnerable on my part because I thought, I'm not, I don't know how to do this. I'm not good at this. I've been proving that for 30-plus years now. And so why did God want me to do this? I don't know. I, I think he just wanted to use me in situations that I could relate to people um, who also didn't think they were supposed to be there. But I was talking to a guy who'd been sort of a mentor to me, and, and uh, 
He said, so what are you going to do after, after you finish Fort Worth Seminary? He said, well, you know, I've been offered this job. And I mentioned the guy's name offered me the job. He goes, oh, my gosh. Whoa. He was super impressed by this guy. He was super intimidated by him. And his first words out of his mouth, he said to me, is, wow, you could really fail. Because he held this guy in such high regard and was so intimidated by him. They had gone to graduate school together, and this guy was, a, you know, in his mind, you know, well, larger than life. And, I, I, and at first I took it personally. I thought, well, yeah, no kidding, I could fail. I know that, but thanks for the obvious, you know. I already told them I could fail. They don't, think that, they don't seem to agree with that. And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I thought, okay, I'm in my early 20s, and this guy's in his early 50s, and he just told me something about him. That he spent his, he's been spending his entire adult life not wanting to be vulnerable, not wanting to fail. And so, you know, one of those weird reversal moments, not out of pride or, hey, I know more than you, but just out of clarity, I said, you know, uh, I will probably fail starting my first day, but I always want to fail forward. I want to fail into whatever I need to learn and however I need to grow. And if this is for just a short season, I guess God wants me to do it. And it gave me a moment of clarity that, oh my gosh, our need to be vulnerable and to grow into authentic people isn't just when you're a little kid watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This is a flashlight. This is how that works. It's this ongoing process of coming alive. And Fred Rogers knew that it was all about coming alive in Christ. And that's what we've been seeing in this, this uh, book of Ruth. Jesus, of course, is not mentioned in this book, but we'll see next week how Jesus uh, is very much involved in, in what this book is about. And so basically, EQ, spiritual maturity, uh, uh, if you prefer, is a quality of openness embracing vulnerability. It's about embracing vulnerability. Where do you need to grow right now? Where would you not want to be found out right now? Uh, where would you be mortified if everybody knew who you really are? That's probably a place uh, that you could call a place of vulnerability. What, what do you believe but you're not living up to? I've noticed that the longer I live, my beliefs go at this level, uh, like this. I believe more, I know more, and my behavior goes at this level. When I was first starting out, what I believed in and how I behaved were so compatible and so integrated, it was awesome. But every day beyond what I was learning, I was knowing more, but I was able less to apply it. Do you relate to that at all? And so that gap isn't a place to hide or to fear. It's a place to say, Lord, this is where you're going to meet me. And so it's a quality of openness that allows us to embrace vulnerability. And healthy vulnerability is basically hopeful humility. Hopeful humility. That's, oh, well, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to open myself up to this new experience. I'm going to test uh, you know, the validity of this idea by putting my weight on it. I'm going to step out and do some things that I think uh, are, are worth doing, but I don't know if I can make it. A little secret, having worked with mainly leadership-type people uh, for the last several decades, and specifically men, I can't tell you how consistent it is that men would say, really, my biggest thing is just not to fail. And, and the more accomplished people become, the more amazed they are that, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing what I'm doing. We all feel like we're sort of posers and imposters at some point. But one of the great things we see in this book is, uh, is if, at the point that you say, this is who I am and where I am, that goes away. We don't have to ever worry about being a poser or an imposter. Why? Because we're people in process with the living God. 
We're saying we're learning to walk with God. And that's not a call to be religious, per se. It's a call to be alive, expressed in things that we might call religious practices. I go to church and worship God. I reorient how I, how I make my priorities. I serve others. I, I use my money and time in different ways. Uh, so in this healthy vulnerability, we have this hopeful humility. Lord, I'm going to put it out there and open myself to you and other people. And, and it's the pathway then to developing the authentic strength we need to thrive and to endure and to bless people. Why is that important? Because God made us to thrive in any and every circumstance. Thriving doesn't mean you're always happy and comfortable. Things are going well. Thriving means you have a sense that, you know what? Nothing and no one can separate me from the love of God. That even if I died in the process of doing this, I have an eternal security. But more importantly, isn't, you know, am I willing to die? It's am I willing to live? Am I willing every day to wake up and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this day? And so I begin to thrive, and I, get to, I begin to endure. I can face circumstances that are, that are repugnant to me, that are scary to me, that are off-putting to me, that demand a lot of me. And in the process of thriving and enduring, God uses people and circumstances to bless me, to bring the best out of me, and he uses me to bless people, to bring the best out of them. Does that sound at all attractive to you? Because this is what the message of the Bible is. Anything else that somebody's told you about the Bible um, could be cultural, interesting point of view, but this is the message of the Bible. God himself tells us this authoritatively. And so vulnerability then means wisely following God now toward a better future, drawing on his influence in our character. His influence in our character. That's the big idea of the morning. Okay, so that's where we're going. So one day, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter... I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Now, this is chapter 3 of, of, of Ruth. <clears throat> and what has preceded, uh, in these first two chapters, we found out that this woman, Naomi, and her husband had two sons, a famine in the land, big famine. They lived in a town called Bethlehem, which is also called Ephrathah. That was the old name for what is now called Bethlehem. And so they're Ephrathites living in Bethlehem. They're true blue Jews. There's a famine in the land. There's only so much land, and people are not able to get enough food out of what's there. So they leave for a while to go out of Israel 50 miles away to a country called Moab, uh, not Utah, but Moab next door to Israel, modern-day Jordan. And it's, it's a downer because uh, everybody in Israel doesn't like the Moabites for a bunch of historic reasons. But that's where they have some, they're not having a drought of the same magnitude, and you can make a living. So they go there. The, the sons meet Moabite women. These are lovely girls that they meet and marry. Unfortunately, the two boys die. The, Naomi's husband dies. So Naomi now, having gone with a, a husband and two sons to Moab for a brief period of time, finds herself a decade into it, a widow, and having lost two sons. And now she's looking at these two young women, uh, Ruth and Orpah, who are her daughters-in-law, who have now become followers of Yahweh. They've become followers of the God of Israel. And they've embraced the faith that Naomi has. And they love Naomi, and she loves them. And so they say, we're with you forever. And she goes, look, really, widows, are you kidding me? We're the most vulnerable people in the land. Stay here with your families. Go back to your families. You're young. Remarry. Start families. And neither of these, these young women had children yet. Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Beautiful words. 
They go back to, to Bethlehem. They're welcomed back. Ruth said, Naomi says, you know, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and sweet. Call me bitter, Mara. This is my lot. And so uh, they're, they're hand to mouth because she can't do anything with the land that they possess. It's two widows. And so Ruth says, hey, how about if I go glean? I'll go follow the harvest, this first in a long time harvest. Everybody's happy and excited about the crop that came in. It's good times in Israel. I'll go walk behind the, the regular workers and pick up little bits of grain. And so that's what Ruth does. She finds out that she's working for, uh, on the land of a wealthy guy named Boaz. She, he sees her amazing character, very impressed with her, and he's looking out for her, has all these workers look out for her, and finds out that Naomi says, yeah, well, you know, he's in this relationship. We're, we're, we're distant relatives. And because we're in the same subfamily of the tribe of Judah that lives in this place, uh, he, has a, he, he could be one of those people that has a responsibility to help us. And so it looks like it's all coincidentally coming together, but you see God's hand in all this. So now she says, okay, here's the situation. Um, uh, I, I, need to, I need to find someone for you to marry. So this is where we are in the story. Tonight, she says, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. He's a very wealthy landowner, has all these people working for him, but because it's the first harvest in a long time, he's there to make sure everything is going well so that all the people working for him will have what they need, that Bethlehem will be able to be restored as a, as a viable place. And so he's there. But she says, Naomi says to Ruth, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. It's kind of like, oh, that's interesting, but what does this have to do with the story? We'll find out. So then she says, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. So this is the, at the end of the day, it's getting late in the day, it's dusk. You know how it is at dusk, it's a great time of day. And so people are eating and drinking, and it's going to be dark soon. And you know when it gets dark in places that don't have electricity, you know how dark it gets? Unless there's a, there's a moon out or a sky full of stars that you can see, it's dark, 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 right? Um, uh, this last service was one of those uncanny things. There was a guy here I haven't seen in years, and he was a guy who's now fully grown. He's a business advisor, um, father, etc. He was a high school kid in Newport Beach, and I, I, I take these kids on these mountaineering trips, and, and we're out in the most remote part of the High Sierras, and as we're climbing through these passes to get there, it's quite scary. He was exciting, which is another word for scary, and he's talking about what an awesome trip it was. He reminded me, yeah, yeah, that was really fun. And, and he said, remember you got lost. Now, I had conveniently forgotten that I had actually, I wasn't really lost. I just didn't know where I was. And what had happened was we went to this remote place, the Hoover Wilderness, way you know, out of Bridgeport. It's just beautiful, drop-dead gorgeous, you know, alpine-like. And, and we're all there, and we're camped high in this valley under the Matterhorn Peak, which is 11,000 uh, feet high. And we'd finished up for the evening. I said, hey, you know, I coming over this pass, who would I run into? Some, these, some people I've known for a very long time, like world-class mountaineers. And they, had, they were taking a group of, of university students out in the same area because we both worked for mountaineering outfits a long time ago. And so we had happened to be at the same place at the same time. Very remote, very unlikely that that would happen. So I said, hey, I'm going to talk to these folks I haven't seen in ages. So I, I've been to this place so many times. So I walked down to this high alpine valley, which is nothing. You can see everything practically. Uh, just boulders and some small trees. So I walk down, I'm talking to them, it's getting late, I'm like, oh, can I go back? I start walking back to my camp, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's dark. 
It is so dark, and I got my little headlamp on, which gives me maximum, you know, like 10 feet in front of me. I'm like, I know where they are, I just don't know where they are, if you know what I mean. And so I'm thinking, I know I can find them, because I'll just start walking like this. I'll just start doing these, you know, slice it up, and by 2 a.m., I'll find them. Or I could humble myself and be completely vulnerable as the big, big mountain guide who's led them to this godforsaken alpine death place. And, I, and I, yelled out, I yelled out the name of the group. And all of a sudden, these people started laughing. Can you believe that? In my vulnerability, they started laughing because they were like 50 feet away from me behind some boulders, and, and, and as soon as he started laughing, I thought, I knew I should have just walked f- further. <laughs> so, you know, now I have to walk in, and they're all like, oh, hey, you know, Mr. R- Map and Compass route-finding mountaineer, good to see you. Were you lost? Yeah. Well, I was confused momentarily where I was, you know. My point on this uh, is no point. There's no point to this whatsoever. Um, <laughs> my point is that it was dark. And it's a disorienting environment for everybody. And Naomi has given Ruth this plan, and Boaz is about to become part of it. He's going to be disoriented as well. But it's dark, right? So she, she says, Naomi says to Ruth, don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. What does this sound like to you? What does this sound like to you? Let's just be honest. Does this sound like seduction to you? I can't believe you even think that. It does. To a modern ear, we go, oh, okay, yeah. Get, get cleaned up, a little perfume, put on a good-looking dress. He's just had a long dinner, a little wine. He's a wealthy guy. You're an available widow. Oh, yeah. And which would be a, a, a good assumption, uh, except that it's completely wrong in this situation. I'll tell you why it's wrong. Could that happen? Of course it could happen. But the Bible is pretty much out there when it tells us what happens. When there's seduction going on, the Bible makes it really clear. Hey, this is a seductive thing. Uh, Bathsheba decides to take a bath in, in the middle of the day in front of a window, under the window of the palace next door where David just happens to be hanging out. Is it her fault that they, they had this liaison? Uh, or was it just a mutual thing of, hey, you know, my husband's away at war and you're the king and you know what I mean? They, clearly the Bible p- paints a picture of seduction. And there's many other examples of that. In this case, what we think looks like seduction is quite the opposite. It's even better than seduction. What could be better than seduction? Uh, God's will in the context of seduction. Any seduction here is, is not here. It comes later. So when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Why would you have to note the place where he is lying? It's dark. Because in this whole threshing area, it's not a very big area. Neither was that part of the high Sierra where I couldn't find my group. But it's big enough to pay attention to where he goes. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Oh, I bet he will. Again, we think seduction. Uh, what happens uh, when the sun goes down and it's, and it's early spring uh, and, and the night grows long? Your feet get really cold. Uncover his feet. His feet will get really cold. And you'll be ready to have a private conversation with him that you couldn't otherwise have. Because everything is public in this setting. And Ruth says, I'll do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. 
Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Predictably, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, you know, probably his feet are cold, and he's like, here's something, and he wakes up, and said, I love this, and there was a woman lying at his feet, big parenthesis, a big, big uh, you know, uh, exclamation point. Who are you, he asked. So the question is, if he didn't know who she was, how did he know she was a woman? Does not smell like one of my workers. Oh my gosh, there's a perfumed woman at my feet. Who is it? Who are you? He asked. And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. You see how maybe the ed, what we think is the edginess of seduction is sort of dissipating at this point? We're going, oh, whoa, okay. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This is both euphemistic as well as obvious. Uh, it's cold. Put, put your, your covering over me. But remember, you are a guardian redeemer. And so the euphemistic part is, you know, you are somebody who can, can uh, lift Naomi and I out of the situation we're in. You have that right and that privilege. And we talked about this last week, but basically a guardian redeemer, a goel is the Hebrew word for it. Is, is somebody who has the wealth and status in your extended tribe of people, which might be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, who when somebody in, in the extended tribal family gets in, in a bad situation, somebody would go to the Goel, find them uh, somewhere, and say, hey, you know, a distant relative of yours has been sold into indentured servitude for 40 bucks. And the Goel would be able to go, oh, okay. And they'd go say, look, I understand my relative took a loan out and you own them for a season until they pay off the loan, here's the 40 bucks, and they're free. In some cases, in the case that we're seeing here, uh, Ruth is married to a young man, the, the son of Naomi and her deceased husband, and that means there's no legacy. Uh, the, the guardian redeemer is a person who could actually say, I will marry you and take you into my family, and any offspring will, will be to your credit and your family very powerful social security sort of situation. This is the social net. And so he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Then he realizes, oh my gosh, the ingenuity and the creativity of being in this situation where she can say, I really do uh, want you in my life. I invite you uh, to invite me uh, to be part of your family. It's powerful. He's flattered. This is not some vampy young woman going, hey, so just you and me here on the threshing floor. He has seen her day in and day out for months in this barley harvest and then the wheat harvest. He's seen her over 50 days of harvesting, and, and, and so he, he, you'll see what he says of her. This kindness, he says, is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So he makes a distinction. You haven't been just chasing a husband. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. And he says this, to put it in a larger context, all the people of my town know you are a woman of noble character. You are a woman of noble character. I got to be vulnerable and tell you that having lived in Newport Beach for a very, very long time, having lived in the OC for a very long time, uh, Janet and I will be in situations in Newport 
where I will see people that either I know them or I don't know them, but I know everything I see and, and how they're behaving, I know this person. I've known this person since the early 80s, so to speak. And it, it makes me want to say, ah, oh, now there's a person of noble character. And, it, and it, it's like, it's, it, what I would usually say is, uh, I'll see somebody and I'll think, wow, every creative endeavor has been made to change this woman's appearance, but it's all about personality. And Janet, I will laugh, but yeah, it's all about personality. And I'm thinking, all about noble character, not. What he's saying is, it's very clear to everybody, you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. So the plot thickens. There's somebody else who can actually claim that privilege on your behalf. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to uh, do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And we'll get to see how this plays out. This person will get to buy all of Naomi's um, property and then take on the responsibility of, of uh, marrying uh, Ruth. So she laid his feet until morning. And so the, the writer says, look, there's nothing going on here. She's laying at his feet till morning. But got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. Notice, not done to her, done for her. And added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. A very wise man, right? Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And there I leave you until next week to conclude this story. <laughs> and it gets better. It's profound. It's an awesome ending, especially with all the nuances. Very, very, uh, very powerful uh, story. So uh, what kind of story is this is the big question. What kind of story is this? Now, you know, most of us would reasonably say, well, it's a love story. It's a love story between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, but that would be to miss the point. It's, it's, it's not primarily a love story. A love story is a subset of the larger story. Uh, this is a story of love, but it's really a story of God's love, of God's love for his people and an example of his love for his people in a place with some particular people. Um, and in, in, that, in that rich plot, uh, there is a love story, but this is not about that love story. It's a story about God honored in faithful people. It's a story demonstrating his love in their actions. You want to know what it looks like to, to walk with God? Look at these people. These people are examples of what it looks like to walk with God. Not to try to impress God, but because they've been so impressed by God, they can't help but want to walk with him in the way that they're walking with him. And so the story revolves around a Bethlehem family being faithful to the Lord in difficult times. Bethlehem is an example of a faithful town. Naomi is an example of a faithful Israeli woman. Ruth is an example of a faithful Moabite convert. A contemptible foreigner who now is a follower of, of the one God. And Boaz is an example of a faithful, wealthy man. Notice the place in the Bible. Uh, this follows a book called Judges, precedes a book called 1 Samuel. 
What's going on with that placement? Because the kind of writing it is could be in a different part of the Bible. Because the Bible, the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read uh, is, is three parts. It's the law, it's the prophets, and it's the writings. And so uh, the Torah is a law, the Nevi'im is the prophets, and the, and the um, Ketuvim are the writings. T together it's called the Tanakh. Jesus' Bible was the Tanakh. And in this part of the Tanakh, uh, you have this narrative of the judges, the history, followed by 1 Samuel uh, history. This story is, is really not talking about the history. It could be part of the writings. It could be part of Job or Psalms or Proverbs. Why is it where it is? Because they lived in the time of the judges, about 1100 B.C., and what that meant was they're out of captivity, and they don't have a king yet, but they have these leaders, men and women, God raises up to steer them in the right direction. But, but the, it's, it, the, the, the whole country is a mess, because though they're in the promised land, they're not keeping the promises they made to God. They're doing their own thing in their own way, and so people, their own people are being enslaved and, and, and treated poorly. They're, they're contemptuous toward uh, other people, like the Moabites. They're not following the laws of, of the Torah. They're not people who people would look at and say, oh, I want to know the God that you don't serve. So what's going on here? It's a beautiful story of God's grace at work. A beautiful story of God's grace at work. Look at what it looks like when a, a town takes God seriously, Bethlehem. Look, look what happens when a man like Boaz, who can do anything he wants to do, takes God seriously and prioritizes his life around the living God. Look what happens when a woman like Naomi goes through the difficult things she's gone through. And when, through her love of her daughter-in-law, who comes to know the same God that she worships, brings her back, and that daughter uh, then dives right in. Uh, this is what people who walk with God look like. So this is the big picture that we see in Ruth. And, and so there are no explicit messages in the story. Here's the first principle of Ruth, do this. Here's the first law that, so there's nothing like that. Uh, it, it's not explicit, it's implicit. Everything we get out of this story is about being inspired and motivated. It's an impressionistic story. It says, oh my gosh, am I that kind of person? Do I want to be that kind of person? Uh, a little footnote here. If you're new to reading the Bible, and if you're skeptical about reading the Bible, many people will say, uh, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Which is true, but it's false. If you read the Bible like you read anything, you know how to read literature. You know how to read the front page of the newspaper. It's supposed to be just the news. And if you want to get the, somebody's point of view, you go to the back part of the first section and you read an editorial. If you read a poem or hear a song, you know it's a poem or a song. If you hear a, a podcast, you know what it is, right? So my point is, uh, yes, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, but you can make the dictionary say anything you want it to say. The Communist Manifesto is buried in the dictionary. Why? Because all the words are in the dictionary. Just pull them out and put them in the order you want. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. You get my point? So there's nothing explicit here uh, that you could, or nothing secret in here that you have to have esoteric knowledge. If anybody ever tells you, oh yeah, there's some secret information that people don't know about in the Bible, it's, it's, um, um, it's BS, which would be bad scripture. It's taking the Bible out of context and misusing it, misapplying it. So this is not a didactic story. This is an inspiring, motivational story. Why? Because it's a story that calls the best out in us. So I ask you the question, uh, what's God's work looking like in you right now? What is that best that God is calling out of you? 
What is God speaking into you that's calling you to a better version of you? What, what gives you an inkling that God is writing a better story in your life, that you're attracted to what you see in his word, you're attracted to what you see in his people? What is going on there? Pay attention to that. How is God at work in you right now? What is the beautiful story of God's grace at work in you looking like right now? Maybe you're not even aware of it. Just some things are happening, but you're not sure how to interpret it. Maybe it's a good idea to turn to somebody who seems to know more about this thing about walking with God than you do and say, hey, I don't know if this is God speaking to me or what. What should I be paying attention to? You might be surprised to have uh, those people say, you know what, I think God is doing a work in you. What does that mean? I think God has given you opportunities to open your heart and your mind to him. To learn to communicate with him. To learn to be in a relationship with him. Seriously? I'm not really a religious person. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about relationship. How is God at work in you right now? I want to take a moment, wrapping it up. How is God at work in this church right now? Uh, three, three bullet points. Uh, just to bring you up to date. We are financially healthy. Uh, I heard some people saying that, uh, I heard this third hand, hey, this church is in crisis, it's, 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 it's bankrupt. I'm like, no, this church is financially healthy. We have an amazing uh, management team that manages the finances of this church. We're in good shape. We have an annual audit. Uh, we have reserves. We are, we are in good, good shape. Uh, what is true is that we're perfectly financed to do what we're currently doing, which means we're not financed to grow right now. But we're not going out of business. We're, just, we're in a good place financially. Uh, but we need, uh, if you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for us to go out of business or waiting for somebody else to give, don't do that. Uh, be giving. Because if we're going to grow, we need people to step up and give. But no, uh, we are a well-managed, uh, healthy financially church. And so thank you for your faithful giving if you've been part of that. Um, second thing I want to point out to you, our church is growing. Uh, we are smaller than we've been in the past, but we are a growing church. People are coming to church. People are returning to church. People are, new people are showing up at church. So please do this. Say hello to people you don't know yet. The easiest thing in a church like this is to say, ah, I should know them. I don't know them. I'm too embarrassed to ask them who they are. Two guys sitting right here. This is uncanny. Kevin and Tom. Kevin and Tom, about, I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, we're in a, a sitting in business class flying into O'Hare Airport. And I think it was uh, you two guys, and that the, you, you were right on time, and the pilot said, ah, oh, uh, we got to circle. And you guys spent 40 minutes circling. Is this true? You, you, 40 minutes circling the airport. And because now you, were, you finally had nowhere to go, nothing to do, you started talking to each other, and you discovered that, oh, my gosh, yeah, we both, wow, yeah, we both live in La Jolla. Oh, yeah, we both this, we both that. And it turns out, hey, we both go to the same church. How come we've never met? Well, they went to two different services, right? And so um, it's that kind of thing. You, you can have proximity to people and not really know who they are. So don't be shy about saying some, to somebody before you leave today, hey, I, I know I should know you, or maybe you're just brand new, but my name is my name, and who are you, right? So our church is growing. And the way we're going to grow is by people feeling welcomed and connected, and our, our, our goal to grow is not to be big, it's to be alive. And the more people that are part of it, the more alive we are, and the more we can help people experience what we've experienced in Christ. And the fin final thing is we'll be offering a new members class. So if you'd like to become a member or explore what that is, uh, let us know. Tear off something, uh, you know, tear off the sheet from the, the, 
the bulletin and, and say, yeah, I'm interested in a new members class, and we'll get in touch with you and tell you when we're going to offer the next one. Another piece of uh, housekeeping news I want to update you on. We welcome two new board members uh, to our board, uh, two trustees, Kepa Francisco and Dick Chapel. They've previously served as boards, uh, board members, and so they're going to be uh, finishing out six-month terms, uh, taking them through May. And they joined some other trustees, Bob Penner, Dave Mason, Mike Shingaris, Bridget Riley, who you heard speaking earlier, Jeff Shepard, who's out of the country today, and me. So that's an update, Kepa and uh, Dick. Uh, we welcome you back onto the board. And here's the exciting news of the morning. This is the big, big exciting news. Uh, David Thompson will be joining our staff uh, as an associate pastor starting December 1. December 1. And, um, and this is possible through somebody's generosity. And, and you and I need to step up and match that generosity. As This is the first step of us rebuilding our staff. Uh, we need to add staff in children's ministry and youth ministry in other parts of our church. Why? Why do we need staff? The, our staffing philosophy is this. We don't have staff so that the congregation doesn't have to do anything. We have staff to support the congregation in using uh, your gifts to do what God wants you to do within and beyond this church. And, as, and, and so the only reason we have staff is to make more things possible. We can't support more families and children's ministry without a, a staff person. Right now we have a phenomenal interim staff person in Chris Young. He's awesome. Uh, but he's doing this out of love for the church uh, on a very, very uh, uh, temporary basis. Uh, Ryan is doing a great job uh, building youth ministry. We need, we need a more staff to support him and to be part of that. We want to reach the kids in this community, the children, the teenagers. We want to reach families. Uh, we want to support the kind of missional things that we've been doing. And so to do that, we need some more staff. Dave is the first installment on that. Uh, joined with his wife, Jacqueline, son, Samuel, who's three, and daughter, Emily, who's 18 months old. And they have one on the way as well. So soon to be a family of three. Uh, let, me hear, uh, let me have you hear from Dave himself. Good morning, La Jolla Community Church. Uh, my name is David Thompson, and I'm going to make this brief because I do not want to take away any time from Steve's message, but I just wanted to take a moment to introduce myself to you and to let you know how excited I am that in just a couple of weeks, I get to come on staff and be a part of what God is doing in your church and in your community. I've had the privilege over these past couple of months just to meet so many people from your church and your staff and so many great conversations with your senior pastor, Steve, about what God has done in your church, what God is doing, and the great anticipation of what God is going to do in your church. And so I look forward to partnering with you and your staff and everybody there and seeing those things become a reality in your church and in your community and seeing people say yes to Jesus. My wife and I will be praying so much for you as we get ready to transition over, and we would love for you just to take time over these next couple of weeks to pray for us, and we look forward to meeting you in person and can't wait again to be a part of what God is doing in the future of LJCC. So we will see you in a couple of weeks. God bless. Fantastic. Uh, so Dave has been a pastor at uh, uh, a megachurch here in San Diego for the last five years, and uh, he's ready for a new challenge. And so we're ready to welcome him because we're ready for a new challenge as well. So I want to leave you with this. 
Uh, please pray for, pray for our board, for our staff, for Dave and his family. It's a new season at LGCC. Uh, you'll learn more about what his uh, role will be, but as an associate pastor, teaching and preaching and helping develop and support and, uh, and extend uh, our capacity to fulfill our mission. Really, the, the big challenge in this next season, the big opportunity, is to align around our mission. Uh, we've had uh, a lot of dissonance in the last uh, couple of years about aligning to our mission. And when you're not aligned to your mission, everybody has a better idea, and nobody has an idea that goes anywhere. And so what we've, been, we've had a mission very clear, and now we're, we're aligning around that mission in this new chapter, new season. And Dave's going to be a significant part of doing that. So please pray for the board. You have a phenomenal board. You have an awesome staff. And Dave is going to be a wonderful addition to that. Please continue supporting uh, this church with your time, your talent, your treasure. Uh, whatever level uh, that you can give in terms of financial uh, commitment, in terms of, of serving within the congregation, uh, that coffee comes from somewhere, right? And, and those houses we build in Mexico come from somebody. Those builds that John Wilson leads, next one, December 7th, require us to step up and be a part of. We have so many opportunities to bless this community and to build a bridge for them to Christ. Uh, so give your time, your talent, your treasure. And then finally, um, today, following the service, our trustees will be uh, right out there in the Welcome Center uh, Mary Rugg, our uh, executive director, will be out there to answer any questions that you have about where we are as a church. So if you have if always had a question or you have a question from what you've heard me say, uh, go out there and ask them. And we, we are very much a transparent <laughs> operation here. There's no question you can't ask, no issue you can't raise. Uh, let me tell you, though, we are an entrepreneurial church. Uh, we don't do what we always, we've always done. We do what needs to be done each season as we go forward together. But there are two areas that we are absolutely command and control. And that are, those two areas are children and money. Uh, we uh, are absolutely adamant about protecting children and their safety, and, and so that's inviolable. And that's why we have all the checks and balances about how we uh, ad administer uh, children. And then the second one is money. Uh, we want every penny to squeak. We are a scrupulously managed financial operation. I, I mentioned that earlier. Uh, we have an annual audit. We have a phenomenally capable uh, management team, and so uh, what our goal every year is to end with no money unspent toward our mission. At the same time, uh, our goal every year is to use the money wisely. So we have some proper reserves for you know the things that we have to have. Uh, part of our arrangement uh, is to have to have reserves, so we have those. But we don't sit on piles of money. Everything we have is in play, and your part in that is absolutely essential. So uh, any other questions along anything about this church you have, please ask. But right now, we're going to uh, conclude worship uh, with an offering, and that offering is not just a time to bring your, your tithes, your offerings. Uh, some of you already give that in other ways. Uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Online banking ways, or through stocks, or through big gifts throughout the year. However you do that. Uh, if, if, if some people just love bringing money as part of the offering, we continue to do that. But really, the core of the offering time in worship is to say, Lord, I'm offering me to you. I'm opening my core to you. I'm opening my heart, my mind. I'm opening my arms to you. If you don't know who Jesus is, perhaps today's the day you say, okay, Lord, I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. If you've been far from him, maybe today's the day you come home. It's a homecoming day for you. Maybe for you, you're saying, gosh, it's going so well, but I, I'm just nervous that it might end. We want to encourage you that don't worry about the future. Uh, just stay focused on him one day at a time. So let's continue worshiping the Lord as the offering of the morning is now received.
Uh, if we can pray for you for anything that concerns you uh, personally or for people in your life that you want to pray for, uh, just go right out around the corner and uh, to the prayer garden and say, please pray for me. And if you want to tell them specifically uh, what to pray about, great. But take a, take a moment to do that if we can pray for you. If there's anything we can do to help you take that first step with Christ or a continuing walk with Christ, let us know. We want you to know that, that we are here to support people as they come into a relationship with a living God, to figure out what he's put in your hands so you could use it to glorify him and bless people. Uh, we believe that God is calling us to live our faith out loud and in public in, in a way that would be appropriate um, uh, but conspicuous, that we would be able to be the people that somebody would say, tell me why you do what you do. Why do you uh, believe what you believe? What is it that makes you want to believe in God the way you do? So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him one day at a time, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.